0: Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joe Tossi from techtables.com, and you're listening to the Public Sector Show by Tech Tables. This podcast features human-centric stories from public sector CIOs, CISOs, and technology leaders across federal, state, city, county, and higher education. You'll gain valuable insights into current issues and challenges faced by top leaders through interviews, speaking engagements, live podcast tour events. We offer you a behind-the-mic look at the opportunities top leaders are seeing today. And to make sure you never miss an episode, head over to Spotify and Apple Podcasts and hit that follow button and leave a quick rating. Just tap the number of stars that you think this show deserves. And to continue this darn good conversation, head over to the Q&A section on Spotify. Today we have Jim Walker, Senior VP of the Public Sector USA at Revoyo. Jim, welcome to Tech Sables. And before we kick off today's episode, I want to give a big thank you to one of our brand partners who keeps this podcast free to the listener. Nagaro is a leading provider of digital government services, partnering with state, local, and federal clients on some of their most strategic technology projects. Nagaro offers expertise in digital services, legacy modernization, case management, data and AI, service desk, cybersecurity, and more. Make sure to check out nagaro.com. That's N-A-G-A-R-R-O dot com. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, no, I'm excited you're here and appreciate the introduction. From Krishna. Always love talking with him, chatting with him, and glad that he was able to connect the both of us. Before today's podcast kicks off, this podcast is sponsored by the Tech Tables Live Podcast. We've hit Phoenix, Austin, Raleigh. We're running out the year in Sacramento on Friday, September 23rd, and Florida, Tallahassee on Friday, October 14th, with Jamie Grant and his team at the Florida Digital Services finish out the year. It's been a ton of fun, total blast. Make sure to check out techtables.com for the latest live podcast tour updates. All right, Jim, let's kick it off with you. So for those who don't know, can you maybe give us a quick background? You've got an impressive background, right? Let's just be honest. When I was preparing for this podcast, you've got a quite a great resume. Could you maybe just start covering with the NASA shared services and then moving on through the Deloitte UI path and where you're at today. And before you answer that, fun fact, I actually just interviewed Renee Wynn, who's the former CIO of NASA. So she's fantastic. Two weeks from now, the episode will come out. But Jim, I'll let you kick it off right now.
1: Good, so thanks, Joe. Look, you're turning out to be quite the little influencer in this space, <laughs> and this space needs an influencer. So congratulations on doing some good stuff. And I'm looking forward to your in-person event in Tallahassee. As you said, I've got a long career, 32 years in the federal government. My last five or six years was at the NASA Shared Services Center down in the southwest Mississippi, a crazy fun time. And I wanted to join that specific organization because they are a fee for service within NASA. And I really wanted to get a better understanding of the business part of working when you're trying to drive money and income. And that's what the shared services does. It it doesn't make a profit. It tries to break even for the rest of the agency so that they don't pay excessive amounts for administrative functions. We ran across robotic process automation at a shared services outsourcing network conference down in Orlando and said, wow, this is absolutely an opportunity to do something that hasn't been done. So we fielded down there after about five months of working, uh, fielded the first robot RPA robot in the federal government is extremely exciting. After that, I like I said, i had been in for 32 years. I said, let me go see what about the private sector. So I joined Deloitte's team, a great team there. They were all focused on doing good delivery of services to government, and we delivered the Treasury Department four robots out of Parkersburg, West Virginia, at their shared services center. And it was getting them pretty obvious to me that. RPA was gonna have a play, not only in shared services across government, which in and of itself would be a great opportunity to save money and make government better, but the rest of federal government also. So I joined UiPath, which I just really felt was the best RPA solution at the time. I think in addition to being an RPA solution now, it's more of a platform that offers intelligent automation, chatbots, and AI and machine learning and all of the things necessary for a digital system to be managed by automation. And was all ready to retire back in October. I decided to leave, I was ready to go. Everybody around me down here in Pensacola, Florida is retired. And about two months into that retirement, I got a call from Paul Frenberg from Raboyo, a jolt at the time. And he said, hey, how about coming to work for us for less money, less staff, and have to put in more hours, but get to get next to government people and help them understand the value of automation. I couldn't resist that one. And so I joined their team. I got here in January. We have been really out evangelizing the value of intelligent automation to government. And it's just a roller coaster of a career of fun and excitement. Couldn't have been better for me.
0: Now you got to tell the real story, right? Because you said that Paul came to you, Jim, and was like, hey, you're going to take less money, you're going to work more hours. What he didn't tell you was that he talked to your wife and he said, the wife said, you need to get out of the house. So I want you to go back. That's the real story, isn't it? You're like retired for a couple months and then you're like, oh, okay. Wifey says, I need to go get a job. That's the real story, isn't it? Yeah. I needed to get out from that honeydew list. I love that. Okay. So let's go a little bit deeper. So let's start. You have this phrase as I was prepping for this podcast the goodness of automation. That's actually going to be the title of this podcast because I actually really like that phrase a lot. Can you maybe just talk about what that means in the context?
1: Yeah, so Joe, technology, when it started, right, in the 70s and 80s and computers started to get onto our desktops and laptops came along and the internet finally started to make its way, the promise of it was it's going to make work better. You know, it's going to make this, our lives better, but it was going to make the workplace better. We were going to have the paperless workplace, Life would be easier, we'd all be able to sit around and enjoy each other's company at work and do good things. And the reality is technology became the beast and that beast constantly needs to be fed. We're constantly feeding SAP with data and Oracle and our calendars and our service nows and our spreadsheets and our government off the shelf products and all of this other stuff, we're feeding it. We've essentially become the robots for our software. At the same time, government stayed roughly the same size over the last 15, 20, 25 years. The size of the federal government has shrunk a little bit, kind of leveled off. The size of state and local and city governments has grown. But overall, we're still seeing about 15% of the country works for government. And yet the size of the consumer base, the citizen base, tourists and travelers that come here is growing. And you reach a point where you can't bring on enough people to do the work that needs to get done. So government is constantly behind. Now, someone's going to argue with me later that, oh, government should be more lean and more efficient and all that. Yes, it should be, but it never has been. So I don't think we're going to see that anytime. But we still want to strive for how to make the government better for citizens and also make it better for government employees. I just talked with a government leader in Utah who reminded me that an employee in certain aspects of an agencies in Utah make about $17 an hour. Now, if you listen to the news, all government employees have gold handles in their bathrooms and they have the easiest life going. But the reality is some of them are doing work for not much more or even a dollar or two less than a McDonald's employee. And so intelligent automation allows us to finally tame the beast. It's going to allow government employees who are at a DMV processing paper on top of paper on top of paper and death certificates and marriage certificates and registering your dog and ordering parts and keeping up with reports that come in from law enforcement. That type of necessary government work is not necessarily having to be done now by people. Automation can do that work for them to really liberate those people from that work. And when you say that liberate the people from the do higher value work, somebody says, oh, you sound like a marketing person. Think of yourself as a mechanic down in Corpus Christi, Texas, where helicopters are brought in from the army to be repaired. And talking with them 50% of their day is ordering parts. Do we have the part on hand? If we don't have the part on hand, we have to order the part. Has the part arrived? When is it expected? All of that type of stuff. The goal of the the facility in Corpus Christi is to have a helicopter come in, completely overhaul it down to its smallest part, and get it back on the line to do humanitarian missions in Africa or to do military missions and wherever they're called to do it. Spending 50% of your day is not what a mechanic wants to do typing on a computer. Automating that work, having a digital laborer work with that mechanic, It's not only going to get that helicopter back on the line faster, but it's going to allow that mechanic to do what he or she does best, which is do maintenance on vehicles. Another quick example, child welfare caseworkers in New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Dallas, you name the big city, 60% of their day is spent typing reports, gathering data, finding things. And the things that they're doing with respect to digital is pretty much the same all the time. And because it's so similar all the time, a bot could be trained to do that work. No child welfare employee gets up in the morning and says, I hope I can spend 65% of my day behind my computer. They would like to be out visiting a home. They would like to be at a school checking on one of their new people, one of the new children. They'd like to be doing better things for children who are at their most vulnerable time but they also have to do this necessary government paperwork so that everything can be documented. And so using automation for good government is an opportunity for us to give a government employee his or her own personal digital laborer, their own intern. And the two of them can make themselves not only more productive, but make themselves productive in a way that it helps you and I as citizens asking for services from the government.
0: Yeah, that's really great. I want to pause here real quick because you mentioned a use case that I think is fantastic. So the child welfare use case, it's across the U.S. I had a great conversation. I think this is episode 106 with Shauna Rogers and Krishna, uh, my, li- my last live podcast went in Austin. Shauna actually talks about on the podcast, she actually, the fir- one of the first things that she did when she came into OAG was to implement RPA. And to streamline that process, I mean, once, she, I think she came in three days after COVID started or something, <laughs> is like when she started there, and the call volume was insane, messages to the website, everything was insane. It was like, we've got to be able to streamline this. It's not going to happen with humans, and we've got to do this very quick. I think is a fantastic use case for RPA. And I'm sure you've got just a wealth of Uh, use cases in your head that we don't have time to cover today every single one but I do really love the child welfare use case one now one of the questions that I was thinking about so I really like automation in my own little world and I know it's nothing like some of these bigger companies in my own little world for me it's like Zapier and like a bunch of these other little apps that I can just like hook things in together and automate I, I love it but there is there are myths out there right there are just myths around maybe how automation takes away jobs, and things like that. And I know you've heard this time and time again. We're both believers in automation. Obviously, you came back to work because you're a big believer in automation. What are your favorite myths that you've heard? And then maybe you can dispel those myths also. Yeah,
1: I would say there's three big ones. There's the idea that bots are coming from my jobs. We don't really have anything here to automate, but the other department could. And then there's this idea of broken bot syndrome. And so I'll start with broken bot syndrome first because it's one that seems to pull down the efforts the most. Broken bot syndrome says that bots are costing a lot to keep up and manage and maintain. Okay, If you're building them correctly, if you're building them on processes that are highly automatable, bots aren't going to break on you all day long. Is your network going to stop working and the bot can't work? Of course. That's the same for your humans. Is your application going to get an update and nobody told anybody, just like they don't tell any of your staff, and suddenly something's moved from page two to page four and nobody knew and it creates disruption? Of course it is. The good part about it is with broken bot syndrome with bots is if you build them correctly and there is a change, it doesn't take very long to go in there and fix that change. I don't need to pass out the change to 300 employees, so they don't mind that it's not something that they know about. When I go to the ATM machine, I have no idea how it dispenses exactly the amount of money I ask for every time, but I've done it enough now that I know it will do exactly what I want it to do, which is dispense what I need. So that broken bot syndrome really bugs me because I think that's just examples of poor development, not the bots themselves. The other one, they're coming to take my job. First of all, most government employees will tell you they don't get to do their entire job all the time. They do the things that get them yelled at the most. And that's an eight hour day for most knowledge workers in the government. So if I'm able to automate 10 or 15% of that work for them, and that frees them up to get to that other 15% that they weren't getting to already, then no one's at risk of losing their job, but we're getting more of what we wanted from that employee because they're partnered with a digital laborer. And of course, if I do, Automate 30% of their work, and they only were missing 5% of their work. They've got some extra time on their hand. How about we use them for some of the things that we've always thought would be great to do? I talked with another government leader last week in Utah, because we're doing a lot in Utah, at least talking to them. And he was like, hey, I put in for automation for last year's budget, and it was turned down. So I can't automate right now. If I'm using bots, I can create some space, not only in dollars saved. But in man hours and human hours saved, where you might be able to put somebody on a little pet project just to see if it's going to work the way you think it is. So that next year when you're developing your budget, you can quote your use case as a success. Because every time there's something in the budget, someone wants to prove that it's going to work or prove that it's needed. And so I'm a real big fan of saying bots are definitely going to come and take your task. They're going to take menial tasks that you really don't go home and tell your family, oh, today I was so happy I got to take a spreadsheet of 1,000 entries and compare it to 1,000 invoices and find the two that were wrong. And when I found those two, I was so exhausted I came home. How about I found two problems today that saved our state $100,000 because the bot did the 98 of them for me and it allowed me to focus on the two. So let the bot take your task while you improve your job and then the thought of we don't have anything to automate. Uber doesn't own a car and they're constantly automating their rideshare service. I want automation to be doing the things that people can't do to free us up to do the things that we can do. And to think that if I'm in Palm Beach County, Florida and I'm doing documentation on legal cases, RPA bot and AI bot, are now filing those into the court dockets. And the county clerk's office is so happy because they were getting screamed at by lawyers because the documents weren't in the court cases. They didn't mention that the lawyers were filing the documents after hours via fax and email when they knew nobody was in the office. And now because they're using bots to do that menial, mundane work, but they're doing it 24 seven, justice is able to move at the speed of
0: digital in Palm Beach County. My favorite myths. I love that. I want to, there was a question. What was the, we don't have to automate anything. What I was curious. What questions do you ask back to them around their workflow and process to maybe provide clarity around, Hey, this is actually how you can actually go automate, what questions are you maybe asking to get them to think about, to get agencies and other folks to think, oh, you know what, as I'm going through this process, we could actually automate X, Y, and Z. And I didn't think about that before.
1: Oh, yeah. So part of it is I'm going to be in Texas this week, flying out there for Wednesday and Thursday. We're doing some hands-on activities with state employees. Because when you PowerPoint people to death, they don't necessarily walk out going, okay, now I'm thinking like automation. I'm ready to go. They're thinking like, oh, another PowerPoint automation. But you put them in front of simple RPA bot or a chat bot or explain to them how machine learning works, they're smart enough to then go, wait a minute. You're saying that if if a bank has a statement and a bank has some receipts that a bot could compare the statements to the receipts and tell you whether there's a problem? I've got this tax base thing that I have to do very similar to that. Or I have this voter registration list that I have to do very similar. I get a list in from somebody else in the county, and I've got a list of people who paid taxes last year. Could the bot compare those for me and do the same reconciliation? Of course it can. So I think giving them hands-on demonstrations of it is a lot better than PowerPoint demonstrations. But I also think we have this, this thing at Raboria we call it the human plus. It's human plus digital. It's almost to your little motto for the podcast about helping people understand the human side of automation. It doesn't matter what the technology is. It's the idea that if someone can do reconciliation because they're comparing a list to a list, then this could be done for you also. Or helping them understand that in Palm Beach County, again, a court document comes in at two o'clock in the morning, and a bot looks to see, is it a court document or is it something else? And if it's a true court document, it passes it over to the AI, which is a lot smarter. It, it learned a lot more about this. It compares it. It figures out what court case it goes with. It pulls the data that's needed, gives it back to the bot, and the bot files it in the court docket. Now, most people would say, oh, that." That could only be done by Mary and Mike. They've been in, our, in this job for 27 years, that's all they do. First of all, are Mary and Mike really that excited about doing that every day? Or is it just what they started doing years ago and they got good at it? And then the second question to ask is, can we really afford for Mary and Mike to be doing that when we have backlogs in other aspects of our government services? Shouldn't we ask Mary and Mike to move to do something more important for the citizens that we're serving because we can automate this? And I'll just real quick example. My dad's 89 years old now. When he was a kid in South Mississippi, he pulled behind a mule during the summers to plow fields. He was never unhappy when they brought the first crappy little tractor to them because being behind a mule is not nearly as good as riding up on a bumpy tractor. So we have the ability today to stop doing and pulling behind a mule and put things on a tractor. And our tractors now have air conditioning, radios, GPS driven, they are doing better than before. We didn't have to step through all of the slow paces to get to good. We've gotten to really good tractors now. Automation is the same way.
0: Yeah, I love that example of your dad. Can't imagine he was like, I wanna get back to work. He couldn't wait to join the Air <laughs> the Force. The hard way. <laughs> as
1: soon as he legally could, he joined the Air Force. Like, I can't be
0: behind this mule another summer. It's a great incentive. So in life, there are, in life and in technology, there are hidden costs. I, and when I took econ in college, they call it opportunity costs. And I love that, I love that term. What are the opportunity costs of not using RPA? What do governments stand to lose if they pass up on this?
1: First and foremost, the obvious is they stand to lose the support of their citizens because their citizens are in a digital world now. Their citizens are waking up in the morning and texting their friend in Germany, and they're reading a newspaper from Japan, and they're checking a survey that they put out last night on the social media thing. They're paying their commercial cusp bills, their cable bills and things like that all digitally where they don't even have to do anything other than, oh, there's the mail that says I'm paying $30 again there's the receipt, electronic receipt saying the $30 went out. Life is good. I didn't have to stop and pay that. I don't have to go to the bank. Some of your listeners won't fully appreciate when you got your paper check from your boss every two weeks, you had to rush down to the bank to sign the back of it so that they could deposit it into your account. Because today you get paid, it's electronic, but if somebody happens to send you a check, You're on the subway going home in a fully automated subway. You're taking a picture of it. You're putting in the dollars. And that money is available to you before you get off your subway. So I think the first opportunity lost is the fact that citizens are going digital. You stay back there with horses and buggies. They're all driving Ferraris and wondering, when is my government going to do that? And they're going to be asking because they, in some cases, think they're paying too much taxes. The other opportunity lost is... The employee experience. And this, before COVID, anytime we talked about RPA, it was hushed about would it impact somebody's job. I don't know why it was, because of course it is. Every new technology from the printing press to the weaving loom has impacted the thing. If we didn't have the printing press, we would have nearly the ability to read everything today. If we didn't have a loom and people were still making pillowcases at their home, we wouldn't have nearly the selection of pillowcases and sheets and blankets and drapes and dresses. Technology's always given us more of what we wanted. And so the government employee is sitting there trying their best to service people. They don't get to choose which people come in their door. They don't get to choose, oh, we're not going to service that particular problem with taxes. That You just need to take that up and file the form. They have to help you and I regardless of who you and I are. And so the opportunity cost of not helping your employees create a better work environment for them and therefore them showing the citizens a more welcoming image and giving them better service is the reason why you're going to have a high turnover in people. And before when we couldn't talk about it, now we've got COVID and you can't find enough workers so you can't afford to have government workers. I read an article in D.C. where their problem is that the government employees who used to go from agency to agency within Washington, D.C., but it wasn't that prominent because you were just going from a building on one side of the mall to the other side of the mall. But today, if you can find those government jobs that are, quote, remote, you can maintain your remote work status and not have to go back in and fight traffic and buy gas. And be in the office. And so creating yeah, that they, environment, that digital environment, much smarter way to do business.
0: Yeah, I love this. You talked about, and I'm taking these notes down. There's the citizen piece and having that digital first experience. And then there's an employee experience piece. And RPA I think is one domain that is gonna help tremendously. I think this other domain also how government agencies work between synchronous and asynchronously, and you can just cut out so many meetings. I guess really this isn't all companies across the world type of thing, but that being able to understand, hey, this employee wants to work remote. They want to maintain their lifestyle. They don't want to have to move to, let's just call it downtown Austin. Maybe they want to live in San Antonio, I don't know, or Houston. And and I know some agencies are being really flexible around this or desperate. I got a great example about desperate. I think it's the state of, oh, I shouldn't even name them. There is a state, uh, there is a state and they couldn't find a CISO. And so the CISO in a different state and that's the CISO for this other state. And, and it was like, why can't you find? They had this rule that they had to live in a downtown, highly expensive city. And they couldn't find anyone to take the salary for that job. And so they ended up finding someone in an entirely different state. And it wasn't even a bordering state. It was like 2,000 miles away. Not that there's anything wrong, but I think that's the changing dynamic of how can leverage technology in this digital first world, the location barriers. COVID broke, but I still think. As we're coming out people are still hanging on a little bit to that location based but i think that's going to only loosen it o- over time as employees demand it and they're able to see the benefits of remote work now on the flip side going back to what you're talking about rpa once they can see it in action they can see those they can see those examples they can see those demos then it clicks And you're, I'm sure they're like off to the races, right? Oh, and I can apply this here and here. So I think that's just really powerful. So speaking of actually applying it, you've got a fun story on the podcast. I was listening to a few and you got this funny story about George Washington. Tell us about George Washington.
1: Yeah. So... When we started looking at robotics at the Shared Services Center, we started talking about this bot, which just kept saying bot and bot and bot and bot bothered people. And and bots that are in Twitter bother Elon Musk and bots that are in elections bother us because of the Russians. So just the wrong word. Even at UiPath, we started saying robots because bots has a negative connotation. What we did at the Shared Services Center was two or three weeks. We would hold a little lunch and learn. We'd bring sodas and cookies and invite anybody into the atrium that wanted to just to learn about automation because bringing your people along with your automation journey, it's just critical. You, know, you can force it down their throats or you can have them embracing it. So we wanted them to embrace it. We brought it in and we kept talking about it. And one day we thought, why don't we humanize this bot? Because the more we thought about a bot, it was a teleworker for us. It could have been a teleworker. We were in South Mississippi. It could have been in Jackson, Mississippi. It needs license to do work on software where a human needs license. It needs VPN access to the government network. It needs credentials to log in and be audited. It, it needs essentially all the things that we needed. And so we decided that we were going to beat the Internal Revenue Service at their first bot. They were working to get the first bot out there, had a little head start on us. I think they picked one that was a little more complicated than they wanted. And we end up with the first bot. We name it George Washington as the first bot and actually named it George Washington bot. 90 days after our first bot deployed, we, we get a message that the passwords expired, as all passwords expire, at least at 90 days called downstairs to the help desk and said, hey, I need to change the password for George Washington Bot. His password, and I'm using his password, is expired, and we need to get it fixed. And you could just hear the wheels of the thinking in, that, in the mind of the call agent, and finally the call agent thinking, hey, is this socially engineering, trying to get access to one of our accounts? Could you ask Mr. Washington to come downstairs and change it himself? <laughs> like, no, this George Washington Bot cannot do that for you. And to take it one step further, we were working on a second bot for NASA. We were doing it with the CFO's office at the headquarters in DC. And it came to the point because it was a financial type of activity where they wanted to have segregation of duties because we wouldn't let a person do both things. So we wouldn't want a bot to do both things. Now we know technology wise, we could zero out the cash and it could do both things and it wouldn't be a risk, but it was just easier for us to create the John Adams second bot, second president, And we thought we were going to go through a whole campaign of naming all of the bots after presidents. But then we started thinking about 44, 45, 46, and 47, and that was just going to be chaotic. So they've now changed them to actual NASA mission names. But it was a great way to to personalize the bot so that people started saying, literally, Jim, can George Washington do this? And that's the mindset you want people asking. They may not, the bot may not be able to do it for RPA but I might be able to use a chat bot for that. I may be able to use document understanding to read the document. I may be able to do natural language processing, but you want the employees to say, can, the, can George Washington do this? And other agencies have had competitions and the General Services Administration, their first bot was named Truman. Harry Truman was the president that started the General Services Administration. Others have used all kinds of Star Wars names and all of that. But there's a general consensus that it's not icky to name your bot. Because some people will say, "Why just call it process 11. It's not a person. Think of it as a person. Can that person do this work remotely for me? Will I email them? Will I trigger it with time? Will I have it look in a folder? The same things I'd ask about a teleworker is the same questions I'm going to ask myself about what a bot can do for me. But it was fun to name it. George Washington had its own little cat
0: card on his own laptop. Yeah, that's, oh man, that's really funny. Yeah, actually, Harry Truman, fun fact, I actually knew he had started the GSA only because I had been in the GSA building and there's like, once you go through security, you can see uh they've got like a wall and all that kind of stuff, which is, <laughs> this is so funny. I love the changing of the bot, to the, NASA, the NASA mission names. which <laughs> is really, that's just really funny. Okay, so if we had to pick, I say we as if I'm doing this. If you had to pick, not me, if you had to pick your top three favorite RPA use for, let's go, public sector CIOs are listening in once this podcast is released, what are your top three favorite RPA use cases that you're going to give to them right now, today? Yeah, my, my absolute
1: best top one is Ohio. Ohio had a problem. Mothers would have babies. Mothers would take their babies home, waiting for Medicare or Medicaid of their baby through the card so that she could go in and get medical care for the baby. And according to the state of Ohio, when they ran their pilot program, the mortality rate for babies was a little higher than it should be because mothers were delaying coming in for service because they weren't on their medical card. And a bot was developed that allows the third-party health insurance companies to send it into the bot, processes the person, checks to see whether or not the baby's associated with the right parents, fills out all the information that the state needs and sends it back. And a baby leaves the hospital now on its mother's insurance. And the state says that its mortality rate is better now than it was before their bot. And so when you're looking to make automation and humanize it, to make it valuable to us. Not a beast, but valuable to us. Helping little babies in their first six or eight days of life, it can't be a better story about the value of automation. Other good stories, I would suggest to you, at the beginning of COVID in New York State, they had to feel for the people in New York City. Deaths were tremendous. They were bringing in freezer trucks to, to handle the overflow of dead people. Who We know today what, how long it was gonna last, but nobody knew then. And we didn't know where it was gonna go and was our community next, or was this all it was gonna be was in this one place. At the same time, they're shutting down businesses. Good or bad, they were shut down. People needed unemployment, but the unemployment office had to go home also. So they had to figure out how to bring in unemployment processors and how to get people to file their claims. And the state had looked at RPA prior to COVID, thought it was an interesting thing, but when COVID hit, they come in and say, oh, we're gonna need to know if we can automate this. And it took about two weeks to fully automate the process of applying for unemployment. And face it, they weren't, even if they brought in 100% of their employees to tackle the new unemployment claims that were coming in, hundreds of thousands of unemployment claims were coming in. It weren't going to make that work. They built these bots in two weeks. They ran bots. They started with like 100. And ultimately, they upped that number of bots to about 260 bots running over a three day weekend. And by the time the bots got through, they had broken their backlog. Checks were going to be able to go out to people who had newly applied based on all of the same rules. They didn't have to shortchange anything. They didn't have to cut anything. And the thing I find really valuable is the state's leadership talking about how that process prevented fraud in the tune of a billion dollars worth of fraud. If all 50 states had something even close to that. We could have 30 or $40 billion in fraud detection solved by using automation. In a surge time when they were never going to handle the need of the citizens, the government can turn to citizens and say, it took us two weeks, but we've done this. And what I really like about that from a government perspective is now that you know how long it takes to do, the next time there's an unexpected problem. Whether it's a pandemic or a fire or a hurricane or a flood, you're going to be able to say, we can automate that. We roughly need about two weeks. Hang in there with us, people, for two weeks, and we will have some relief. Maybe it's three weeks. Maybe it's one week. But people will believe you because they know you have something to base that off of. And then the last one I think that you can't fail to talk about is down in Georgia with food stamps and the SNAP program. Right? A SNAP program is administered by the USDA. The funds are passed down to the states, and the states actually do the day to day administration of it. They had really the same type of problem that you would have seen in New York. They had unemployment insurance, but they also had people applying for food stamps and SNAP. And they have two things to do they have to constantly be renewing a percentage of the people who were getting food stamps already, and they had this new influx of applications. So they realized that they couldn't automate their way out of that whole problem. What do we do? The renewal process is pretty much a rubber stamp, yes, renewal. They checked a certain number of databases to make sure that a person didn't have any type of criminal activity or whatever, and then it would be a yes. That's highly automatable. It's highly repetitive. The databases and the access and all that are very well known. They chose to automate that piece so that they could take trained employees who were doing that renewal process and move them up to the approval of new applications. And you think about it. If I'm in New York, I don't know what the pandemic's going to bring to me. I'm unemployed. I'm worried. I'm the same thing when it finally moved down from the northeast down into the southeast. And the citizens down there are like, where's our next meal coming from? How are we going to do it? It would have been a heck of a note if the government would have said, there's nothing we can really do for anybody for six to eight months. Instead, they were able to say, look, if you're up for renewal, we got you covered. You're not going to lose this service, especially now. And for those of you that are worried about how you're going to take care of your families, we've got you. We've got extra staff that are highly trained that can do that work. Government for good, there's hard to complain about government for good.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's a that is a great way to end. It's hard to complain about government for good. So three three great use cases. Ohio, New York City, Georgia. I love that. And we'll actually splice those into some short clips because I think those are some really great examples of RPA in use during mission critical times. Jim, we're wrapping up right now. Where do you like to hang out online? Where's your favorite spot? Is it LinkedIn, Twitter? Where can people find you? Yeah, so I'm a huge fan of LinkedIn. I actually refused to use it when
1: I first started at UI Path, and a young intern said, give me an hour. And I gave her an hour, and she made me realize how valuable it was. I find it's very valuable when somebody doesn't just like your button, but they go in and they disagree with you and they comment, or they agree with you and they comment. But it's a business comment, and it's not some of the hyperbolic stuff you get on Twitter and other social media. So big fan of the LinkedIn and also not it was worth mentioning a big fan of YouTube because that's where you can learn a lot from people all over the world. This, I don't can't imagine where we would be through COVID if we didn't have the ability to keep learning and understanding and YouTube helped in the world of RPA and AI and machine learning and all that to allow me to be trained by people from all over the world in five minute clips and in 50 minute clips.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. So people can find you on LinkedIn, do you have a YouTube channel, or does Roboyo have a YouTube channel? Roboio has
1: a YouTube channel. I, uh, I haven't gotten smart enough to spin okay. one up yet. I just go to podcasts like yours
0: and learn, and then comment on
1: them in the LinkedIn
0: areas. Awesome, awesome. We have, we'll link to we're going to link to that in the show notes. So I appreciate Jim coming on the podcast, and I had a great time. Hey, Joe, thanks for helping government people get their message out. Far too often
1: the message about government it is somehow slow and lazy and nobody innovative. And from the people you talk to, it's a far cry from that being anywhere close to true. So thanks for getting the, a good message out about good government employees doing good things for citizens.
0: Yeah, thanks for coming on Tech Tables. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joe Tossi from TechTables.com, and you're listening to the Public Sector Show by Tech Tables. This podcast features human centric stories from public sector CIOs, CISOs, and technology leaders across federal, state, city, county, and higher education. You'll gain valuable insights into current issues and challenges faced by top leaders through interviews, speaking engagements, live podcast tour events. We offer you a behind the mic look at the opportunities top leaders are seeing today. And to make sure you never miss an episode, head over to Spotify. Apple Podcasts, hit that follow button and leave a quick rating. Just tap the number of stars that you think this show deserves. And to continue this darn good conversation, head over to the Q&A section on Spotify.